You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, it is good to see you again. It's good to be seen. Uh, here we are. That was a joke. Okay. It's good to see you too, Annie. Yeah. It's good to be seen as well. We're all, we're all here for the 30th Sunday in ordinary time. Uh, we're taking a look at Sirach chapter 35, starting mm-hmm. with verse 12 through 14. Well, you're supposed to do this part, Annie. You're so taking you my ahead. job. What are you doing? Taking my yeah. job here, Paul. Okay. 30th Sunday in ordinary time. Annie, give us, give us the goods here. <laughs> all right. So as Father was saying... Sirach chapter 35 is our first reading this weekend, and we will be reading verses 12 through 14, and then skipping verse 15 for some reason, and then reading 16 through 18 after that. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 34. The gospel is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and our epistle is St. Paul's second letter to Timothy. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, and then 16 through 18. There you go. There we go. So I think we they, are they skipped Sirach, verse 15 probably because they don't think we can take it in our modern sensitive, sensibilities. It, yeah. <laughs> but I think we'll go ahead and include it in our on our consideration. Anyways, here we are. Sirach chapter 35. You know, we've got a basically an, uh, a, a theme of the Lord's love for those who suffer, those the lowly, but not just in regards to what might appear on the surface of these texts as far as those who are uh, materially poor, mm-hmm. but those who have a contrite heart and have a real hunger and desire for the Lord in their heart. That's kind of a theme that kind of runs through this. Let's take a look. Sirach chapter 35. Starting verse 12. Yes, here we go. The Lord is a God of justice who knows no favorites, though not unduly partial toward the weak, yet he hears the cry of the oppressed. The Lord is not deaf to the wail of the orphan, nor to the widow when she pours out her complaint. The one who serves God willingly is heard. His petition reaches the heavens. The prayer of the lowly pierces the clouds it does not rest until it reaches its goal nor will it withdraw till the most high responds judges justly and affirms the right and the lord will not delay can we just throw verse 15 in there oh yeah sure here so it's right right out of the thing at the widows right nor to the widow here's here's the problem guys of course we're reading from the what the usccb has because it's going to hear at mass on sunday if you go to the Nova Sordo Mass, and so we print it off for you as you will hear it. However, the verse 15 is in there uh, mm-hmm. right after this part about yeah. the uh, about the widow. Um, right, right. The Lord right. is not deaf to the wail of the orphan nor to the widow when she pours out her complaint. There you so go. In the RSV, 15. it's he will not ignore the supplication of the fatherless nor the widow when she pours out her story. Do not the tears of the widow run down her cheek as she cries out against him who has caused them to fall. Yeah. So maybe a little confusing, maybe, or whatever the case may be, they take it out, whatever, whatever. All right. I kind of like the the, the image, but, but that's me. Okay. Here we go. So, Well, let's start because it's been a, it's been a couple of months since we've had a, a reading from, from Sirach. So, Maybe just a little refresher on on what this book is all about. Yep. So go back to chapter one, verse one. Okay. Well, actually, 
don't go to chapter one, verse one, go to the prologue. Cause in this prologue, book, yeah. there is a prologue before chapter one, verse one. And that prologue is all you need to know. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the title in your Bible, I don't, I didn't, I should have grabbed a couple versions of a couple other Bibles from my cabinet over here, but I didn't do it in the RSV. It says Ecclesiasticus, mm-hmm. which means church, churchy thing, like church book, basically, mm-hmm. or the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the son of God. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, you know, I thought that name. too, father. I have to admit. Well, last week, actually, we ran into this because of Joshua. Yeah. Remember Joshua, Moses? Yeah, yeah. Hands outstretched and Joshua, who is Jesus, right? The same name uh, uh, in from Hebrew to Greek. And so we have Jesus, which is, of course, like you're like, okay. I mean, how many people have named their children John Paul or Benedict? Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot. And so it's a similar thing. Joshua was a great prophet and leader of God's people. So it was a, it wasn't unco- it wasn't uncommon to name your child Joshua uh or or Moses or whatever the case may be may be. So sure. so this is a guy who is the it's the wisdom of Joshua, the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Okay, uh, and so you this book then becomes known by these two titles. Why Ecclesiasticus? Well, this is a the Ecclesiasticus. It was a title given to it in the what, like third or fourth century, mm-hmm. because it was read a lot of times in the church. It was one of the most uh, common books used in the church as a catechism of how to live life, right? How to be morally upright, how to be upstanding. It was read in the early church for the same reason that it was read, or sorry, for the same reason that it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, okay? So why, and why was that? This text that we have comes to us, the Greek text that we have, at least, which would include then the prologue and the explanation of why uh, of the pro uh, of this of the book in the prologue is given to us right here, in which the this this guy who's who's writing this down or translating into Greek talks about about what four or five sentences down. One of his four or five sentences is just a run-on sentence. <laughs> it's just a run-on <laughs> sentence. About, it says, "My grandfather Jesus." Right? Yeah. Wait a minute. I didn't know how Jesus had kids. <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't think but, you did. Okay, okay. And then my grandfather, Jesus, devoted himself especially to reading the law and so forth. And he had a lot of wisdom and he wrote stuff down. He set up a catechetical school in Jerusalem, this guy, Jesus, Joshua. And his grandson later on goes and travels to Egypt, where there's a big group of people, a big group of the diaspora Jews living down in, in, in Egypt. And uh, out of which we get, of course, the Septuagint, mm-hmm. uh, Greek translation of the of the Old Testament. And then I'm going to go three paragraphs in to the prologue. When I came to Egypt in the 38th year, okay. And so what? This this book is written somewhere around 170 uh, before Christ, okay, before the coming of the Lord. So we're like right on the edge. He's knocking on the door of. Bethlehem, basically, if you can, if you know what I mean, and uh, from a from a historical standpoint, and he's writing to or translating his father's writings um, about the moral life. Why is his father writing about these things in Jerusalem about how to live an upright life? Uh, because they're living in a time of oppression, hmm. in which the people are trying to come to some re- way to say, "Wait a minute, we messed up." And that's why the Messiah is not coming. The Messiah, the king, the restoration of the Davidic throne has to take place because 2 Samuel chapter 7 says the throne of David will remain forever. We know that the Messiah will come. The king, the anointed one, is going to come. And when he comes, then the the kingdom will be restored. Yes? That makes a lot of sense about what Jesus talks about all the time about the kingdom of David, right? The kingdom of of heaven is at hand and all this stuff, right? Well, Going back then 170 years, the people are saying to themselves, why isn't he come? We came back from Babylon, what, 500, well, 170, so 300 years ago, okay, something like that, give or take 100 years. They came back from Babylon and not, not things didn't go well. 
And why didn't they go well? Because the people were not faithful. And we've looked at that so often. We're not going to do that right now. You can look at Zechariah. You can look at Zephaniah. You can look at Malachi and all of these things in which they're saying, basically, you came back from Babylon and you went about building your own home, worrying about your own self, worrying about your own job, worrying about all these things. And you left the temple in ruins. You people, don't you love God? And therefore, you've had famine, you've had all these bad things occur, that life isn't going well for you, and you're oppressed. You're slaves in your own land, right? Isn't that what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, yeah, Nehemiah says that they're slaves in their own land, right, as they come back from Babylon. So, 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 so Jesus, Joshua here, the son of Sirach, is talking about living an upright life. Uh, and the importance of that upright life. Now, I, I'm saying all of that for two reasons. One of it to understand what his grandson and why his grandson is going to say what he's going to say, but also to realize that this is just prior to the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Wow. And that, of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees are all about, if they have something in common, they're, they're, they're about living a really hardcore life dedicated to God. So the Messiah would come. They'd cause the Messiah to come because they're going to be so righteous, right? It's so spilled. It right. Yeah. And so you can understand this is this is this is the same type of idea coming up here in this book about righteous living. Now, why the grandson in Egypt? Because they're in the diaspora and they're surrounded by a bunch of God-forsaken pagan heathens in Egypt. And there's and the people are saying, well, what do we do? We don't have the temple. We're away from the context of the promised land. What do we do? And and the, the answer is ultimately that that you must live an upright life. And if you do, then God will come and dwell in your midst, regardless of whether you're far from the temple or not. He will be with you. Yeah. And that's the basic sense of this book. And then, of course, the challenge is both in being oppressed by the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans in Jerusalem, and then being oppressed by being a minority and a majority pagan mm-hmm. culture in Egypt. Here you now have what we're reading, which is God's hearing your prayers. Yeah. If you just come to him and ask him, he'll be there for you. Do you see that? And you can understand yeah. being in Egypt and being afar from the temple, right? Yeah. And, and I also pray. like the the whole idea about like he's not unduly partial towards you, but he hears you. Right. He hears you. Wasn't that what I was saying last week or the week before, whatever it was, Andy, that we have this whole thing about the preferential treatment of the poor and all this right, stuff. Right, and like, right. God doesn't love poverty in that sense. Like he doesn't like, Oh, he's so happy when we suffer, you know, and this no. is not the God of the Christians. No, but, but, but he does love it when we're hungry for him because then he can feed us. Right. It's the full person that can't be fed by the one who has the food. So yeah. he does that desire that, that poor Ness, if you will, is a hunger. Is a, there's a, a hidden hunger there, right? And a hunger not for food, but for the things of God. And so, the hungry person in Egypt is the one who's yearning for Jerusalem, who's yearning for the temple, right? And so, Sirach's grandson, or sorry, Sirach's great great grandson, right? Uh, Jesus's grandson here, translating his grandfather's work, is saying, "Not to worry." You are distant from the from from the temple. You are finding yourself in a in a in a state of poverty. You've all this, but but God hears your prayers. You, you don't have to be cutting the throat of the lamb in the temple precinct in order to sacrifice to God. Sacrifice to God is a contrite heart, mm. and and He will not be spurned by the Lord. Yeah, right. Uh, so there's your 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 introduction to Sirach. Okay, so I want to look at... Can I add one more thing? Oh, sure, please. If you find yourself in a similar situation in your life, read Sirach. And this is what the early Christians did. Read it with them. And, and, uh, and, then, and, and allow the Lord to speak to you in your, mm-hmm. in your time of difficulty. So I want to talk about chapter 35 of Sirach as, as a whole. Um, okay. To to kind of have a a bigger context, because I went back and read it in preparation for this. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like in in chapter 35 as a whole, you see this sort of like link, I guess you could say, from 
almsgiving to worship and justice and mercy that they're mm. all sort of interconnected in in this chapter and i was wondering if you could sort of speak to that sure sure and i'm just going to go to verse seven to to connect with what you're saying but also to what i just said the sacrifice of a righteous man is acceptable and the memory of it will not be forgotten right so what and so what's the key to the sacrifice it's the righteousness and yeah. this goes to what you're asking annie about this connection what do you say connection between almsgiving so almsgiving worship justice and mercy okay so i'm gonna go back to justice so what is justice giving someone what they are due good there's your your technical definition write that down in your notebook justice is the giving to another what is his due or what is due to him yeah mm -hmm. thank you annie we won't you won't charge us for that today right no, no, free no. philosophical principle <laughs> yeah and uh and mercy of course is is kind of justice in action if you will mm -hmm. and there i think there's the key to what we would the distinction between christian justice and secular justice secular justice is to get the person back for what right. they did eye for an eye kind of the stuff. christian the christian sense of justice is to give to the other person what is necessary that they be who god has made them to be this is why we don't believe as christians in retrib what is what would be the difference retributive justice is that yeah, the thing Andy? as opposed to restorative justice the, yeah. restorative justice the the and we see this right because our society while it is getting more and more godless still holds on to certain christian principle upon which it was founded and so what do we do we put somebody in prison but we don't just leave them in prison to rot right we we put them there and then what do we do we give them a, a task to do they have access to library books oftentimes um they can get some counseling we even have ministers go to them and pray with them because we don't believe in getting somebody back for what they did we realize that when somebody does something it's a reflection of the state of their soul yeah yeah so we put them in prison because they cannot function in society in a in a way that's positive towards society or positive toward themselves we put them in prison so that we can give them everything necessary so that they can come out of prison and be a part of society as they as they're supposed to be yeah so restoring them in their image and after their likeness so uh justice is always to do that to look at the other person in their weakness and then to act accordingly so that their weakness can be healed this is what jesus did he saw the paralytic and he went to heal them i oftentimes say to people you know because we struggle with anger all the time or my boss does this or my spouse does that or my father or my brother does this and i got i get angry with them i said what did you expect did you think they were immaculately conceived um did you expect that they were going to be perfect and do everything towards you as they should forgiveness is not forgetfulness the other person is a sinner yes the other person uh is not acting toward me the way they should act toward me of course they're not the only person acts towards me the way they should act toward me is god <laughs> you know? nice. everyone else has fallen short um and uh and and so um or i should say and the saints right because the saints are in the lord sure okay um and so my action toward my brother is always to be to look at them in their need and then ask what i can do to bring their healing so again forget forgiveness is not forgetfulness forgiveness is my desire and my action toward the other person that they can then be raised up right the paralytic is raised up the blind man sees the sinner the the cheat is healed of his cheating right the person who talks behind my back uh some in some way i can bring them back to my uh, relationship with me they can see what they've done to, to, to me and can begin to not do it anymore and begin to act properly, right? And so you see, you see I don't want to belabor the point, but then the then the thing, mercy and justice, right? But you said almsgiving and worship. Well, worship yeah. is my, my, my just action toward God, right? My actions toward the Lord in a just way. And that is to, to, to say thank you for the gift I received, which is why we call the liturgy the Eucharist, Evcaristo, Thanksgiving. It is the Thanksgiving offering. Jesus is the perfect example of this in which he, he offers himself to the Father in Thanksgiving to the Father, right? And so he establishes this communion. The one who has bestowed everything upon him 
he then offers himself back to the one who has given him everything, right? And we are to do the same thing because the Lord has given us everything. Almsgiving, which is the part where like half the people that are actually watching this right now are going to click. I don't want to hear from a priest talking about almsgiving. Stop. Just hear me out for a second because almsgiving is a beautiful, a beautiful opportunity in which I can do justice. In other words, give to another what is due to him. And in the same moment that I do that, I can also be restored in myself by my action to be who I'm supposed to be. So I give to another what is his due. The person's in need. I meet their need through the things that I have because I realize what I have is a gift from God. Everything I have is a gift from God. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I was talking to a priest today. Very good insight he had. A friend of mine, he said, he said, we, we try to get, we try to ask people to tithe, right? 10% of their income goes to charity, but that's what the Jews did, right? The Jews did this and they didn't have grace. So 10% is the foundation. It's the old Testament piece upon which we build our new Testament understanding, right? right. 10% is the beginning of my charitable works. It's not the end. So if you haven't been tithing, you've been missing the foundation. But I'm nice to people, Father. I'm charitable to people. My brothers and sisters, God has given us what we have. Take what you have and give 10% back as a token of your thanksgiving. And then, having done that, then then begin your charitable work. Mm -hmm. On top of it, the love which Christ has given into us, yeah? In our time, talent, and treasure. So. So, so there you go. Worship is my, is my just action toward God. Let me hold on. Look at this. Don't you love it when you always have the right book at hand? Yes. And that that right book is going to open for me to the right page. Why? Because I read this page so many times that it just opens to opens it. to this That's page. Awesome. And so don't listen to me on this. Listen to Pope Benedict who says, what is worship? What happens when we worship? In all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. But this concept has been buried under the debris of endless misunderstanding. The common view is that sacrifice has something to do with destruction. It means handing over to God a reality that is in some way precious to man. Now, this handing over presupposes it is withdrawn from use by man, and that can only that can only happen through its destruction, its definitive removal from the hands of man. But this is immediately raises the question: What pleasure is God supposed to take in destruction? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. What pleasure do I take in your sacrifices? Is anything really surrendered to God through destruction? One answer is that, that the destruction always conceals within itself the act of acknowledging God's sovereignty over all things. But can such a mechanical act really serve God's glory? Obviously not. True surrender to God looks very different. It consists, according to the fathers and fidelity with biblical thought, in the union of man and creation with God. Belonging to God has nothing to do with destruction or non-being. It is rather a way of being. Now, wow. it's this way of being is, is God's way of being, right? Which is which is love. God has, the, the Father has poured out his life to the Son and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. He's lived a life of loving communion. We are to do that to with him. And then having done that with him, with one another, and create here on earth the kingdom of heaven now revealed in this kingdom, which is the church, in which we give, when we pour out our life for one another, is God has poured out his life from all eternity and then in creation to us. Does that make sense? So yeah. worship and almsgiving, justice and mercy are all the same reality. And it's and it's it's God and it's his life. God is love, yeah. Yeah. And to just to bring it around to the the verses that that we have here, because that was kind of the context around this. Um, so it's so cool. I mean, when you think about it, like it, because it starts off, the chapter starts off talking about almsgiving and then goes into yeah. this, the Lord being a God of justice, not having any favorites. And like what you were talking about with this righteousness, this is how we receive the mercy of God is, is through that, that humility, that um, recognizing that everything is a gift to me and giving it 
to those in need, and then we can receive that mercy from the Lord in return. Yeah, and at the beginning right? of that is our our recognition of that gift. And so yeah. I oftentimes tell my kid, my kids, uh, to say thank you, Jesus. Yeah, like for example, if we've blessed the food as a family for dinner, and one of our children happens to be running late or I use the bathroom, whatever the case may be, when they come in, I say before they eat, say thank you, Jesus. Okay, and it's important that we do this. Thank you, Jesus, through our whole life and everything we do, every moment, everything we we talk to people. Thank you, Jesus, and you know, to realize to start to become a Eucharistic person, right? Yeah. A person filled with thanksgiving. When we do that, then bitterness is is cast out. Yeah, mm -hmm. and this is what the Lord is seeking from us, and this is what we're learning in Sirach, being taught to the 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 Jews who are in Egypt, but also those in Jerusalem under oppression in these difficult times to just be one to, who is honest with the Lord about who I am and then who he is in my life, right? The beginning of holy confession is always confessing the Lord, yeah. who he is. And only then can I confess my sins because it's only then that I realize how far I am from the perfection to which he's called me in his image yeah. and likeness. I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm looking at this word lowly here in the first reading before we move on to the, to the responsorial Psalm mm -hmm. in the what RSV. Verse, what verse are you in? Um, I think in the RSV, let's see, it's, this would be verse 17, the prayer. This one says the prayer of the lowly pierces the cloud. And in verse 17 in the RSV, it says the prayer of the humble pierces the clouds, which I think is such a beautiful image, by the way this piercing yeah. of the clouds. Yeah. But the, the humility being the key there. I just and wanted to ask the about key. the word lowly, but. Yeah. That's going to be the key. That's going to be the key to our gospel, right? Yeah. And what we're going to look at in the gospel. Yeah. But before we get to the gospel, let's just look at the responsorial Psalm, Psalm 34. I think what we were yeah. talking about, this idea of thank you, Jesus, actually, Father, I think comes out at the beginning of the Psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall ever be in my mouth. Annie, let me just add to you uh, in, an insight from, from one of the church fathers, Theodore of Mopsuestia, who said, he did not apply the terms lowly and contrite of heart simply to those reduced to this condition from the disasters, but to those in this condition by intent and resolve. So as we're chanting this responsorial psalm this Sunday, the Lord confronts evildoers to destroy remembrance of them on the earth. When the just crowd, the Lord hears them and from all their distress, he rescues them. And I said earlier, you know, if you find yourself in a time of difficulty, but all of us must take this approach, this contrite heart, this intention toward the Lord by which we are, we are intentionally hungry. Yeah? yeah. For the things of God and having done so the Lord will hear our prayer because it's a prayer of the righteous man, right? Of the mm. just man, the one who is in communion with the Lord. And there's having established that communion, then there's conversation happens, right? The Lord speaks to us and we speak to him. Okay. Yeah. Beautifully put. All right. Shall we look at the gospel? Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter nine. 18. Flip over to Luke in the New Testament Catholics. That's right. I've heard somebody say that before. <laughs> this follows, Annie, just after this parable regarding the unjust judge, judge. right? Yeah, that we yeah, talked yeah, about we last talked week. About last week yeah. And the widow who's praying and is consistent, which is Sirach, right? This is what, what Sirach's saying. And here's the, here's the lowly person, right? Here's the person who struggles. Here's the widow who is left in distress. And then now another parable in the same way, right? Yes. And, but I, as we read it, as you should always do, you got to get yourself inside, right? We're standing there with Jesus. Where is he now in the gospel? He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's gone through, he's left Galilee. He's going through Samaria. He's probably reaching the southern end of Samaria. He's getting um, close to Jericho if you keep reading on. He's so. getting very close to Jericho. Many of those yeah. have been with me. So he's in this, he's he's right there. Okay. And now he's so you gotta imagine, right? There if he's getting close to Jericho, he is Jerusalem's right there. Jericho and Jerusalem is like a day's journey up up the mountain, right? This is the location where where Joshua of old crossed the brought the people from the 40 years of wandering in the desert crossed and entered in the promised land 
and it's the place where John was baptizing, where Jesus was baptized, where the new Jesus, right, the new Joshua, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, was baptized by John the Baptist, and then now he comes back to that same area, basically, and he's giving these homilies about real, an authentic prayer, about hope, that God does not despise the, those who are the widows and the orphans and even the sinners and the, and so forth, because this whole thing now from verse, from chapter 14, um, when he was at the table, right? Is that chapter mm -hmm. 14? Yeah. When he's at the table with the Pharisees and the rulers and all these guys, this is continued on and they're standing around listening to these parables. And now Jesus pulls out the big guns and shoots them between the eyes. And that's not the way we usually read this parable because, Oh, the Pharisee and the publican, right? And and mm -hmm. we kind of have this soft side for the publican, the the tax collector. But you got to realize they're standing there, right? And now he tells a really bad story about a Pharisee, and the Pharisees are sitting there listening to this. Yeah, they're becoming enraged at him in the midst of him telling a parable, which we're always like nice. They're enraged. So when he's heading up to Jerusalem, we shouldn't be surprised right. that of what's what's coming. And the disciples have to be saying, "Is this guy crazy? Right, Jesus, don't <laughs> do this. Like you're 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 paving a path to the cross yeah. intentionally." Okay, verse nine. Go ahead, Annie. All right, here we go. Luke eighteen, verse nine. Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Ooh. Okay, good. <laughs> the Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income, but the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Yep. <laughs> okay now now there's a bridge here between the the verse just before so let's just go let's just go back for a second here annie and look at that verse before nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on earth right We've been, we talked about that last week about this about the disciples struggling about the pharisees around him but listen to what saint augustine says does it not strike you when the lord says in the gospel when the son of man comes do you think you will find faith on earth knowing that some would arrogantly attribute this faith to themselves. He immediately said to some who seemed to themselves to be just and despised others, he spoke this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one of first and one of publicans. So you see how say, Augustine, I love the fathers because they're, they're always context and they're seeing this, that Jesus says, will he find faith on earth? And there's some, some guys like, around well, him going, Jesus, we're with you. We're not going to lose faith. Remember, because the apostle is going to go up there. We're going to go with you no matter what happens. We're going to be at your side. That's what Peter says. We're never going to deny you. So they're even among the, the, the disciples now, there's a conversation behind the conversation. There's a conversation behind the parable, right? Yeah. And so he, he gives this famous parable. Okay. Okay. Well, you, you know, shuddered when I said one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of the tax collector and i mean why would jesus choose to compare a tax collector with a pharisee right in this parable yeah well the first question why are the why is the tax collector in the temple right i thought yeah. only the i thought only the jews were allowed in the temple mm. okay now the answer is he's a jew and yeah. they and 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 here's the problem so I've said it before. I'll say it one more time about the Pharisees and who they are. The group of guys. It's a movement, right? It's a, it's a. What do you want to call it? It's it's the 
It's the Marian Guild, right? We're going to go to daily mass. We're going to pray all 15 or now 20 decades of the rosary, right? Every yeah. single day, I'm going to fast three times. And do all this. It's really hardcore. And by doing this, I'm going to cause God to do certain things, right? And they're going to cause God to come. The Messiah is going to come if they just keep the law. So the Pharisees believe that if all of the Jews would simply keep the purification laws that were meant to be kept by the priests, then everything would be okay. And the Messiah would come read. If everybody would just do like, be really serious about being Catholics, you know, <laughs> right. Everybody go to, to church every Sunday, fulfill their same obligation, went to confession regularly. Everybody believed in the Eucharist and all this stuff. Then, you know, okay. And we'd be so all this, right. Yeah. They believed that if they did this, so they're, so the Pharisees get a bad rap. Um, but, but they get a bad rap because ultimately by the time Jesus comes, the, the movement of the Pharisees has, has corrupted and, and yes, they're keeping all of the outward things of the law, right? Remember Jesus says whitewashed tombs, yeah. right? Full of dead men's bones inside, right? So, so there's no, you're doing all these things, but, but, but you're, you're despising the, the, the guy over there. Right. Well, the the tax collector, on the other hand, it was it was a Jew. They were Jews. I mean, they had to be Jews because they had to be able to speak the language of the people. Then they had to know where the people lived and what they did, and be able to collect the taxes, and then do what with the taxes? Give them to the Romans. Yes. Um. And uh. And of course, take a little bit off the top for themselves. So the tax collectors were despised because they were traitors. They were hated. They're the worst of the worst of the worst. Look, it just says in chapter 14, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, tax collectors, chapter 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, to hear him. Yeah. So while the Pharisees are, are, are backing away, they're backing away, but they're still there, right? They're backing away. They're like, they're over there starting to plot. And the tax collectors are coming closer, like, maybe, maybe I do need to reform my life. Hmm. Maybe I do need to go to confession, right? Maybe I do. And, and, I, and, and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so now, um, now he pulls out the parable and throws them out. But the people he sits, puts in the temple are the very people that are standing around him. He says, you guys over there and you guys over there. Let me talk about you people. Let me talk about what's going on. Let's be honest. Let's be open because you're all talking privately behind my back. Let's be honest and open about it. And let's about what's really going on here. So he draws it all out, blows it sky high. Okay. So those are the two people he's talking about there in the temple. Go ahead. Um, does the tax collector just get off scot-free in this? Like, you know, it just kind of seems unfair, doesn't it? That he's going to go away justified. Well, why is he justified? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the question, right? Why is he justified? Because he's honest with himself and he's honest with God. Mm. Yeah. And honesty is the, is the foundation of justice. We have to recognize to confess who he is, the Lord. And then I have to confess who I am in relationship to him. And that is the beginning point of a relationship, right? Re true relationships are, have to be honest and open with each other. And if they're not, it's not a real relationship. Yeah. The Lord seeks a relationship with us. Yeah. He doesn't see, I, I, I get my hobby horse about obligations all the time. Yeah. He, he, he doesn't seek your obligation. He, he seeks your, your life, your, your love. Yeah. A willing relationship. And it's only in that, that he can give his life to you and you can give your life to him and the two can become one. Yeah. Okay. But it's very interesting. Both there's it's like two roads are set on this gospel. Yeah. Okay. And those two paths look very similar at the outset. The Pharisees and, and, and the tax collector, not too different right at the out, outset, right? But both of them believed in God, right? Good, good starting point. Yeah. Okay. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's not enough, right? Both of them, both of them went to church, if you will, right? They both went to the temple. Okay. And again, I thank God, but it's not enough. Yeah. Both of them prayed. So far, sounds like my Sunday obligation, right? I came in, I made it in time for the whatever the time is. I don't even know what the time is. You have to be there. 
you know, you did, we did the bare minimums. They got there, they did it. Now he's not in the bare minimum, right? They're going, they're doing it. They do their duty, but it's not enough. So where does the path begin to diverge? You know, all of these things are good. The fasting, tithing, coming to the temple to pray, all the things the guy lists off, right? All the things the Pharisee, Pharisees lists off are, are all, all good things. But they are all similar in that they're outward practices. Mm. Yeah. And the difference then between the two is what is going on inside. And that's where we have a divergence when they begin praying. Yeah. The Pharisee doesn't really believe that he's in need of anything. Yeah. The Pharisee did not really believe he was in in need of anything from God. You know that because of his prayer, right? Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men. Yeah. Robbers, dishonest adulterers, right? <laughs> or even like this stinking publican over here, right? I I, I fast, I, I I fast twice a week. I pay tithes to all that to all I that God has placed in my life, right? Sorry, I got off my text over there, Annie. What how's he, read read us read us his prayer? Listen to this. Yeah, he says, oh, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. There you go. Right. The, we, we call in the Byzantine tradition, we call God our heavenly physician, mm. our heavenly physician. A physician cannot heal anybody that doesn't come to him to be healed right? There's a, the, who, who has no need of healing. And this guy ultimately has no need of anything. He believes he's self-sufficient. And I, that's, the, that's the, 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 the challenge, I think, for, our, for us as modern Americans in a culture which is obsessed with uh, self-advancement, self-promotion. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really easy to become like the Pharisee, right? Mm -hmm. And I become independently wealthy, right? That's the goal, isn't it? Or Mark say independently wealthy. In other words, I don't need anybody. I'm not dependent on anybody for anything. And ultimately I'm not dependent upon God. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course the opposite is true of this, um, of this, of this uh, tax collector, right? Mm -hmm. What does he say? Oh God, be merciful to me. A sinner. The only thing he asked for. Not cars, not independent wealth, not status, not to be a ruler of the Jews, not to be like the Pharisee. But he asked for God's mercy. Mm. Yeah, which is to be to provide in his life the things that are necessary for him to be everything God intended him to be. And in that he recognizes his own sinfulness, right? He confesses the Lord who's the giver of all good things. And he confesses his own sin, the fundamental structure of any good confession, right? This is what this man does. And what a well, difference. It's really, it's really interesting because, and I happen to know, cause I looked ahead to um, the 31st Sunday in ordinary time that we'll skip over um, a couple of passages until we get to the story of Zacchaeus. That'll be the yeah. gospel next week. So I feel like we can mention this now that, you know, right after this, he blesses children. And then it's the rich young ruler, you know, who keeps all the commandments. And then Jesus tells him to go and sell everything. And so you have this guy that, you know, he keeps all the commandments. You have the Pharisee that's doing all the things, right? I mean, he's, he's fasting, he's tithing. He's, I mean, I got, even though he's praying to himself, he's praying. Um, I'm wondering what this says to us about, our good works and what their place is in our spiritual lives because you know you you talked about you know yeah okay he's not praying for the car and stuff well i'm not praying for the car either father but you know i try to do all these things so what is it in but the, like, key, what's the, the place the con, of that the key is the contrite heart right it's not yeah. that the it's not that the actions are in are are not important right the good works that we are called to do we are called to do good works, but those good works are ultimately good because of a contrite heart, right? A mm -hmm. sacrificed heart is the foundation of true sacrifice. Yeah. 
um, and and apart from that. And so this is why I, I, I'm constantly railing on the whole on the whole obligation thing. And I'm constantly railing on tithing, by the way, not because you're obliged to. You're not obliged to tithe. I don't. You don't have to. The church doesn't require you to. But if 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 you want to grow in holiness, then become like the Lord who's given everything to you. Give everything back to him in various fashion, right? In various forms to the church and to those around you. Live a life of, of live a life of tithing, live a life of self-giving love. That's then you begin to live the Lord's life. Yeah. We're not getting off this gospel before I quote my favorite church father. Annie always gives me a hard time because as we look at the insights of the church fathers, I'm always choosing St. Ephraim to share with you because St. Ephraim is my man. Okay, here you go. Great. He's in the case of that Pharisee who was praying, the things he said were true since he was saying them out of pride and the tax collector was telling his sins with humility. The confession of sins of the last was more pleasing to God than the acknowledgement of the almsgiving of the first. It is more difficult to confess one's sins than one's righteousness. God looks on the one who carries a heavy burden. The tax collector, therefore, appeared to him to have had more to bear than the Pharisee had. He went down more justified than the Pharisee did, only because of the fact that he was humble. If this Pharisee had been sinful, his prayer would have added iniquity to iniquity. But the Lord purified the tax collector of his iniquity. If just by praying the Pharisee, Pharisee's prayer provoked God's wrath, then as a result of that provocation, the prayer of the tax collector proved all the more potent. Okay. Is that, I love how I say that from twist these things. It's beautiful. Anyways, there you have it. The, the uh, parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, I think about just to to kind of transition us to the yep. epistle in in second timothy i think about when you talk about tithing you'll always say you know god doesn't want 10 percent; he wants 100 percent. like that's yeah. the christian way right yep. and and we see that come out in in this in this part of paul's letter to timothy which i was reading up apparently this was this part of the epistle was written like right as he's on trial with Nero, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so you see this man who has given 100% yeah. of his life to the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, that's why any context is so fundamentally important, right? If we don't see that context, the Pharisees standing and the tax collector standing around Jesus at that moment, then it just becomes... Uh, a nice saying of Jesus. Parables aren't nice sayings. They're a deep truth, which strikes at the heart. And he, and with this one, boom, he struck at the heart. And so there you go. Exactly. The context of what St. Paul's going through, where he's, who he's writing to, who is Timothy and so forth. Fundamentally important. A text without a context is no text at all. Well, who is Timothy? Timothy is a disciple of St. Paul, right? St. Paul says about Timothy, my son, Right. And he says, I am your spirit. I am your father. I became your father. Yeah. In the, in the faith. I was just quoting that to this guy walked in the door in my church on uh last Sunday, just before I was about to go up to the altar and begin our prayers. And he walks in this big sign, this big old banner, Jesus saves or the blood of Jesus saves, right? This big baby's going to walk down the street doing this thing, you know? And he says, hi, he says, what's your name? I said, hi, I'm father Hezekiah. And he, and uh, and he says he says you you can't call yourself father. Oh, for God's sake! Oh no! You know, on my head. <laughs> this is right off. before a divine liturgy. I almost lost it. Yes, I should have <laughs> probably got a confession afterwards before I went to the altar. <laughs> you know, you didn't come into my living room, my church. You know, our church, and then you come and start sort of fight with me when you're the one that asked me what my name was. You know. Wow. Anyways, anyways, yes. It's, <laughs> and so I pulled him this text. I said, St. Paul says he's a fa- the father of Timothy. Yeah. So Timothy is his son. Nice. Okay. And he's writing to his son here. Let's take a look at it. All right. Second Timothy four. And we're looking at verses six through eight and then skipping from 16 to 18. If you're following along in your Bible. Beloved, I am already being poured out like a libation and the time of my departure is at hand. I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, the crown of righteousness awaits me, 
which the Lord, the just judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. At my first defense, no one appeared on my behalf, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the proclamation might be completed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil threat and will bring me safe to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then St. Paul is killed. <laughs> it's incredible. So, so there you have it. So you got, the, the again, the context of what you're bringing up is so, uh, so fundamentally important. Um, and, uh, but I would say everything here, everything that we saw in Sirach, Every and then in uh, the gospel itself comes out, and really in the epistle, really is laid out for us all of these themes that we've been talking about in this trusting in the Lord. Saint Paul knows what's going to happen to him. Everyone else being killed all around him for being a Christian is not going to be different for him, and yet he trusts in the Lord because he knows that the thing he's trusting in is is something beyond this present age. Yeah, his hope is in is in the Lord Himself, and so listen to Saint John Chrysostom. The martyr's own struggles surpass our mortal nature. The prizes they won go beyond our powers and understanding. They laughed at the life lived on earth. They trampled underfoot the punishment of the wreck. They scorned death and took wing to heaven. They escaped from the storms of temporal things and sailed into the calm harbor. They brought with them no gold or silver or expensive garments. They carried along no treasure which could be plundered, but the riches of patience, courage, and love. Now they belong to Paul's choral band while they still await their crowns because they have escaped henceforth the uncertainty of the future. And, and I think St. John Chrysostom is speaking to all of us and with encouragement to all of us, Sirach, encouragement to all of us, the prayer of the public and the Pharisee and make it our prayer this coming Sunday. Um, no, matter, no matter how independently wealthy American we are, all of us are poor in spirit and in need of the things of the Lord. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.